Greetings, this is Terry Whitfield, a.k.a. Yashib in Israel, for the Terry Whitfield Yashib in Israel podcast show. Back at you one more time, one more again, <laughs> with another session, another episode, talking about the things they don't want you to know, and the things that people don't like to talk about. The place where we prance through the fog just to glance through the smog. Today's episode and topic of discussion will be Hamashal or the Mashal. Yes, that will be the topic of today's discussion. The Mashal. The Hebrew Mashal. What is the Mashal? Hamashal. Ha is Hebrew for the. What is Hamashal? So I'll be using Hamashal and the Mashal interchangeably just to get my audience a little familiar with how Hebrew works. And if not for anything else, how to understand me. For sometimes I may say the mashal and I may say hamashal, depending on how haruach, the spirit of the Elohim or ha-Elohim works and moves within me. I have to say within me because many non-Hebrew thinkers, people who do not possess the Hebrew thought, look for the power of El in relation to humans to dwell outside of human beings. But that subject is neither here nor there, that's for a later discussion. I'll do a later discussion about L. What is L? Who is L? The Aleph Lamed. I already went off into the who and what is God. The who is L is coming next. But for but 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 for today we're talking about Hamashal, the Mashal. Okay, what exactly? is the mashal. First, I'm going to tell you what my definition of what hamashal is. And then I will use other valid sources, credible sources, to back my understanding, highly credible sources, to back my understanding of what Mashal is to solidify what is the Mashal. Once I, once I can establish, properly define what Mashal is, then we can further the discussion about HaMashal or the Mashal. The first the first and simplest 
easiest way for me to explain to the non-Hebrew or the person who does not possess the Hebrew thought of what a mashal is by way of example. When you look into your English Bibles and you look at the book of Proverbs, okay? Well, in Hebrew, the book of Proverbs is called Hashafar Mashali. The, the book of Proverbs is the first example that I can give you about what the Mashal is, how powerful it is, and how it's been passed down through the hands of time, the Mashal. For easier purposes, you can understand Mashal to be the proverb. Yes. When they have translated the word mashal, or mashali, which is the root word of mashal, when they translated the word mashal into English, the best, most sufficient evidence of proof of what mashal is would be the title for the book of Proverbs. Mashal means proverb. It means maxim. It means allegory. And I have to focus on the word maxim. I should have said that first. Maxim, meaning to rule and to govern. It also means legends. It also means myth. Legend, myth, maxim, wise sayings, okay? Mashul, mashul, riddle. All of these words in English combined together confines what the idea of the root mashal. For the word morphs in the Hebrew language many ways like mashaliyah, you know what I'm saying? Like uh, the book of Proverbs is mashaliyah, and you got nimshal, you know? And each time this word morphs, it contains a specific meaning based off one of those different defining words that I told you what mashal is, like maxim, to rule, to govern, riddle, wise saying, proverb, myth, legend, so when I go to my computer, I look up the word mashal, okay, mashal. And the first thing when you look up a word, Wikipedia always be the first one to come up. 
So a lot of times I like I like Wikipedia actually. A lot of people don't deal with Wikipedia. I like it because uh, Wikipedia also allows for you to place your references where you get your info from, and you can decide whether that info is valid or credible based on the sources because it does give the sources and references to where they get their info. So, we look up the word Michal and Wikipedia has in parentheses the word allegory. Here's the definition. Mashal, in parentheses, allegory. A mashal, Hebrew mashal, is a short parable with a moral lesson or religious allegory called nimshal. Remember, I remember that word? So nimshal is like proverb and allegory. When you see nimshal, that's proverb and allegory. But you gotta hear the word mashal in nimshal, okay? Mashal is used also to designate other forms in rhetoric. Mashal is used also to designate other forms in rhetoric. Understand that. Such as the fable and epithing. Talmudist Daniel Bayerim has recently defined mashal as a process of exemplification, seeing it as a sign quanon of Talmudic hermeneutics. That's Boyarim 2003, colon 93. He quotes songs of songs Rabbah until Solomon invented the Mashal no one could understand Torah at all so basically Boyerin has recorded that in his writings that until Solomon invented the Mashal, which is what you call the Proverbs, no one could understand the Torah at all. The phenomenon has been compared to more recent phenomenon, or or this occurrence has been compared to more recent happenings of sampling in modern popular music especially hip-hop. What I like here is how it talked about the uh, 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 the quotes of the Songs of Songs, Rabbah, where it states, until Solomon invented Mashul, no one could understand Torah at all. I like that. And that is a very real, 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 real saying. Until Solomon vent- invented the Mashal, no one could understand Torah at all. 
You would have to be deep, deep, deep into Hebrew thought to understand that. And being that Mashal is maxims, parables, allegories, myths, legends, poems, and even riddles. People not understanding that could not properly understand the Torah. Because just like every ancient nation and society has always had their own myths and their own legends and their own maxims and their own proverbs and their own allegories. What make Israel extinct from that or exempt from that? That's the better word, exempt. What make Israel exempt from that? Israel is a nation. Today. And it was a nation back then. Today it is a much loosely knit nation. But yet still, it's still a nation. But Israel was a nation an ancient nation, because I'm talking about ancient Israel right now. And just like every other ancient nation had its myths, and its legends, and its maxims, which is rules and laws and statutes, like every other nation had its allegories and proverbs, what makes Israel exempt from that in your mind? The answer is none other than heathenism by way of paganism. Or should I say paganism by way of heathenism? That's more proper. You came to this understanding by way of paganism through heathenisms for it was those that dwelt in the heaths of Britain white folks Europeans that gave you their idea their Germanic ideas of what legends myths allegories poems sagas and riddles mean to them. You've been raised in that understanding three, four, five hundred years, excluded from the older, much more original idea, which is the Afro-Asiatic Hebrew thought. And now many would use the heathen pagan idea to take precedence over the ancient Hebrew idea, which is worlds apart, which is dimensions apart, which is paradigms apart. See, with a holistic Hebrew mind, Every time you say riddle, 
allegory, myth, legend, proverb, parable, nimshul. It all goes back to Mashal. English, you'll know that coming from the opposite way, that when you say proverb, you know that proverb is different from a legend. You know that legend is different from a maxim. You know that maxims are different from myths. You know myths are different from legends. Not one time in the Hebrew definition of Mashal did fairy tale come up. But in English, if you look up the synonym for, uh, let's say, myth or legend, then fairy tale will come up. The problem with that is Israel lived a thousand or two years. The record was spoken a thousand or two years before witchcraft, witches, fairies, fairy tales, or any of that stuff was ever even heard of. For the word witch is Wicca. A Germanic word that have no equivalent in Hebrew. The word fairy is an English word that have no real concrete equivalent in Hebrew. Well, some can say, what about the cherubim and the seraphims? But by understanding and definition, a cherubim is not a fairy. And it's not a tale about fairies. As we can see, as we can see by the definition here, Mashal is used also to designate other forms in rhetoric, such as fable and epithene, apothene. A-P-O-T-H-E-G-M. Apple theme. Now, an apple theme is an adage. You ever hear the term the age-old adage? For adages are concise, memorable, and usually philosophical alphorism that communicates an important truth derived from experience custom or both and that many consider true and credible because of longevo tradition example being handed down generation to generation or uh, mimetic replication whereas a fable falls more in line with the fairy tale more so in, in, in a liter, literary, literary genre, a 
succinct fictional story in prose or verse that features animals, legendary creatures, plants, uh, animate, animate objects, or forces of nature that, an, that are anthropomorphized and that illustrates or lead to a particular moral lesson. A moral which may at the end be added explicitly as a concise maxim or saying. Again, which may at the end be added explicitly as a concise maxim or saying. A fable differs from a parable in the fact that the latter excludes, which means the parable, excludes animals, plants, inanimate, inanimate objects, and forces of nature as actors that assume speech or other powers of mankind. So as we see that when you say maxim, fable, parable, riddle, myth, legend, all in English have different understandings, different uh, definitions. But in English, excuse me, in English, Masal encompasses all of that. And without separation as a root, it becomes separate when when add uh, 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 suffixes, infixes, and uh, prefixes is added to the word. And they're done so for the specific reasoning of designating which one of these words it is more likely to be. Like say for instance, if I want to say uh, allegory, I would say nimshul. If I wanted to say proverb, I would say Michelia. Yet, Mashal is the root word. Understanding that, understanding that the word Mashal means to govern, to rule at its essence. It was at the Israelite courts. The Mashal was at the Israelite courts of biblical times. The Mashal in in Hebrew is comparison or a parable. And it it is frequently translated as I stated as a proverb. Typically a pithy, easily memorized, aphoristic saying based on experience and universal in application. The mashal in its simplest and oldest form was a couplet in which the definition was given two parallel lines 
related. Proverbs is probably the oldest extinct document of the Hebrew wisdom movement in which King Solomon was the founder and patriot. Wisdom literature flourished throughout the ancient Near East with Egyptians with Egyptian exa- examples dating back before the middle of the third millennium BC. It revolved the Mashal, the Proverbs, revolved around professional sages. Remember Sagas, one of the definitions? It revolved around the professional sages or wise men and scribes in the service of the court and consisted primarily in maxims about the practical, intelligent way to conduct one's life and in speculation about the very worth and meaning of human life. The most common form of these wise sayings, which were intended for oral instruction, especially in the schools run by the sages for the young men at the court, was the mashal, which in Hebrew, is the comparison, the parables, the maxims, the riddles, the wise sayings, the myths, and the legends. Typically, a pithy, easily memorized, alphoristic saying based on experience and universal in application. The mashal in its simplest and oldest form was a couplet in which a definition was given in two parallel lines related to each other, either antithetically or synthetically. Verse 5 of the 15th chapter of Proverbs is an example of a simple antithetic saying. He who spurns his father's disciple is a fool. He who who accepts correction is discreet. Other forms of the mashal, such as parables, riddles, allegories, and ultimately full-scale compositions developed later. The word mashal was derived from the root that meant to rule, and thus the proverb was conceived as an authoritative word. The two principal types of wisdom, one practical and utilitarian, and other speculative and frequently pessimistic, arose both within and outside of Israel. That's the problem that we're having today and the reason for this discussion. Practical wisdom consisted chiefly of wise sayings that appealed to experience and offered prudential guidelines for the successful and happy life. 
Such wisdom is found in a collection of sayings bearing the name of Ptahhotep, a visor of Egyptian pharaoh, an advisor to the Egyptian pharaoh about 2450 BC, in which the sage counsels his son that the path to material success is by way of proper etiquette, strict discipline, and hard work. Although such instructions were largely materialistic and political, they were moral in character and contributed to the well-ordered society. Speculative wisdom went beyond maxims of conduct and reflected upon the deeper problems of the value of life and of good and evil. Examples are found in ancient Egypt and Mesopotamian texts, particularly Lablul Bel Nimimki, often called the Babylonian Job, in which sensitive poets pessimistically address such questions as the success of the wicked, the suffering of the innocent, and in short, the justice of human life. Human wisdom, which owed much of that to its neighbors, appeared to be established to the monarchy and a royal court and found a patreon of Solomon. Through the following centuries, the wise men were at times the object of rebuke by the prophets who disliked their pragmatic realism who disliked their pragmatic realism the exile however brought a change in hebrew wisdom it became deeply religious yes the exile however brought a change in hebrew wisdom hebrew wisdom became deeply deeply religious the wise men were convinced that religion alone possessed the key to life's highest values. It was this mood that dominated the final shaping of the Hebrew wisdom literature, both dependent on older materials and incorporating documents from before the exile. The wisdom books in their present form were produced after the exile. In the Hebrew Bible, the book of Proverbs offers the best example of practical wisdom. The book of the sages, the sagas. While Job and Ecclesiastes give expressions to speculative wisdom. Some of the Psalms and a few other brief passages are also representative of this type of literature. Amongst the Apocrypha, the Wisdom of Solomon, and Ecclesiasticus, uh, the Book of Ben Sarah, are wisdom books. The Book of Proverbs' collection is a collection of units originally independent, some of which can be traced back to the era of Solomon. The present form of the book was the result of a long process of growth that was not completed until post-exilic times. It consists of two principal collections of early 
origins called the Proverbs of Solomon and Proverbs of the Proverbs of Solomon and Proverbs of Solomon, which the men of Hezekiah, king of Judah, copied. Appendices, appendices were added, appendixes were added to each of the collections. The whole book was preceded by a long introduction and concluded with a poem praising the ideal wife. In addition to sections titled sections in addition to sectional titles, changes in literary form and in subject matter help to mark off the limits of the various units which can be produced into nine sections. The introduction Chapter 1 through 9 consists, constitutes the youngest unit of the books. It consists of a series of poems or discourses in which a father exhorts his son to acquire wisdom and in which wisdom personified intervenes. These chapters have a more speculative quality than the remainder of the book. They do not treat wisdom simply as a human quality and an achievement or as a cultural legacy imparted by teaching by teacher and parents. They present it as a universal and abiding reality, transcending the human scene. Wisdom is the first of God's work and participated with him in the creation of the world. A constantly debated aspect of this section concerns the identity of loose, strange women who's, who is set over against the wisdom. The Proverbs of Solomon consists entirely of parallelistic couplets, the mashal in its primitive form. There are 375 aphorisms each, complete in itself and arranged in no apparent order. The motivation of this section, in contrast to the preceding, is strongly typical. Wisdom is a human achievement by means of which life can be fulfilled. The wise are contrasted with fools and the just with wicked. It is difficult, however, to establish the nature of the difference, if any, between the wicked and the fool, or between the just and the wise, and I know that's right. The wise, the saying of the wise, chapter 22, verse 17, through 24, uh, chapter 24, verse 22, consists of longer units or sayings introduced by a preface. The most distinctive features are of this section is the close relationship to a piece of Egyptian writing, the instruction of Amenno, Amenimo, A-M-E-N-E-M-O-P-E, Amenimo which has been dated within the broad limits of 1000 to 600 BC. 
The Hebrew author apparently used this work as a model. The Hebrew work comprised 30 chapters and the Hebrew text referred to its 30 sayings. And as one of the courses, or excuse me, and as one of the sources in compiling his own anthology. An additional collection of four wise sayings, chapter 24, verse 23 through 34, forms a supplement of the sayings of the wise. The second collection of Proverbs of Solomon, chapter 25 through 39, consists of 128 sayings that closely resemble the earlier collection, although quatrains as well as couplets are included. The scribe of Hezekiah's court, 700 BC, are credited with assembling this collection. So we see here that the book of Proverbs was assembled by the scribes of the court of Hezekiah in the 7th century BCE and not necessarily collected and accredited with King Solomon. Okay? The book concludes with four independent units or collections. The words of Agor. That's chapter 30, verse 1 through 14, differs sharply in spirit and substance from the rest of Proverbs. It has much closer, closer affinities with the book of Job, stressing the inaccessibility of wisdom. There is no internal evidence such as a continuous theme to show that these verses that that these verses 14 verses are a single unit but in the Septuagint they stand together between the sayings of the wise and the supplement and the supplement the numerical saying verse the numerical the numerical saying chapter uh 30 verse 15 through 33 contains elements of riddle and show a special interest in the wonders of nature and the habits of animals. The instruction of Lemuel, chapter 31, verses 1 through 9, is an example of importance of material advice to a ruler in the ancient Near East. Lemuel seems to have been a tribal chieftain of Northwest Arabia in the region of Edom. The final section, chapter 31, verses 10 through 31, is an alphabetical poem in the praise of the perfect wife who is celebrated for her domestic virtues. The wisdom movement constituted a special aspect of the religious and cultural development of Israel. I repeat, the wisdom movement constituted a special aspect of the religious and cultural development of the ancient Israelites. As a primary document of the movement, Proverbs bear a clear impress 
of this distinctive character so that in many aspects it presents a sharp contrast to the outlook and emphasis of Israel's faith as attested in the Hebrew scriptures generally. This contrast also marks Job and Ecclesiastes. However, greatly they may differ from Proverbs in other respects. I was reading to you from the Mashal. The Mashal definition from the Britannica.com, from the B- Britannica Encyclopedia.com. Britannica is a very well and good source, and I say all of this to say that there are many out here that will run to the believers. Notice that if you paid attention to what I was reading, that the Israelites had a different understanding of what they were doing than those on the outside. And there's those who don't understand the fact that Israelites have maxims, we have riddles, we have allegories, we have myths, we have legends, and we have sagas. And that's what Mashal is. So when someone comes to you and tell you that Abraham did not exist, if someone comes to you and tell you that Noah did not exist, if someone comes to you and tell you that Moses did not exist, all of that stuff is myth. All of that stuff is legend. All of that stuff is fairy tale. Well, your response to them is that it is not a fairy tale. It is a myth. It is a legend. All ancient societies had myths and legends. What make you think Israel is exempt from having myths and legends? The problem becomes is those who on the outside can't tell the Mashili from the Nimshah. <laughs> they can't tell the myth from the legend. They can't tell the legend from the riddle. They can't tell the riddle from the saga. And they lump it all up in one big soup bowl and feed it to you as if though that's trash. You can't let nobody feed you information about something that they don't know and something that they do not understand. You just can't do that. You got the outside atheists sitting up here, running up to the Israelites, telling them, oh, Moses didn't live. Moses didn't exist. Moses not real. Jesus ain't real. Abraham ain't real. Adam and Eve ain't real. If you understood anything about myths, myths were carefully woven stories that all societies had. And these stories were stories told by the society to graft people more deeply into the society. And it doesn't matter whether it was real or not, as long as the people are grafted into the society. What I'm trying to say is that a proverb, a mashal, a myth, 
is more important than history. I'll say it again, a myth is more important than history. Let me give you an example. You got those that are from Kemet and those that the African-American extraction, the extreme, which are usually the fakest ones, they'll come to you and tell you, oh, there's no archeological evidence to support nothing from Israel, which is a lie. We don't have dead bodies to support (laughs) what we're saying because the dead bodies were buried so that we would not venerate and worship them. And then most of the times they were buried in places of secret. So people can't go back and worship them. Like you are doing today with your Egyptian pharaohs. You bring up your Egyptian pharaohs just so you can fakely and falsely worship them. And I asked you, which one is more important? The body of a dead pharaoh or his myth? his mythological writings, his legends that were recorded on the goddamn walls. Which one was more important? I beseech to tell you this, that the man's myth and those stories that are recorded on the wall is much more valuable to us today than that dead ass Pharaoh's body. The body is virtually worthless to us. It could get blown up. It could get disintegrated. All it tells us is that there was a real man whom this story was attributed to. That don't tell us that the story was real. It don't tell us that the story is true because even in our times, there are people recording the news the stories about real living human beings. And I've seen several times that the story was recorded wrong. For I have a friend of mine here in the city I know by the name of Benny White Ethiopia. And Benny is a legend in his own craft. He's one of the guys that I first met when I came into this Israelite game. Very astute artist. And we jailed Benny. In fact, Benny introduced me to Rosa Parks personally, you know. She invited him to speak at one of her birthday uh, celebrations they had here, and he invited me to go with him, and he introduced me to Rosa Parks before she passed away, right here in the city of Detroit. But Benny White, Ethiopia, one of his sons got accused of rape and it hit the news. And I thought it was something done to discredit uh, uh, Benny, but that's neither here nor there. Bottom line is, one of his sons, Aronde, the news said Aronde did the crime. But it wasn't Aronde, it was Yale, you see? The news reported it, or it was Yale and not Aronde, something like that. But the bottom line was the news reported the wrong son name. Yes, his son was guilty of the crime and was charged, but the news recorded the wrong son. So if 
the story of a person in his lifetime can be recorded wrong. Okay? What make you think that the Egyptian did not record biased stories and prefixed stories to put up on this wall? You'd be stupid if you, if you thought otherwise. The power of a myth. A myth has more power than history. And when these people try to tell you, oh, your Bible is nothing but myth. Your Bible is nothing but legend. Your Bible is nothing but fairy tale. They're trying to demote and nullify the power of myth and legend. Myself, personally, I am an Old Testament Israelite. And myself, personally, I don't subscribe to the New Testament. But yet still, I'm not going to be one who beat up on Christians. You know, I'm not going to be one who beat up on the Bible. I'm not going to be one who, because I get no benefit out of that. But yet and still, myself personally, I'm just saying that myself, I'm on the side of the Jews. I don't really believe in the Jesus story. But I am not here to take that story away from you. Because I understand the powers of myths, legends. Sagas, maxims, <laughs> rules, and allegories. And I am here to say it really doesn't matter whether Jesus existed or not. Uh, because let's say if Jesus didn't exist. Let's, 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 let's say that Jesus did not exist. Okay? And let's say that we know that Martin Luther King did. We, got, we know what he looked like. We got evidence of him walking this earth. We got writings of him. We got everything. We even got his body. We got everything. We got his thoughts. Almost everything he did, we got somebody here that can attest to it and confirm it firsthand. We don't have that with Jesus. Jesus died for the Israelites. Liberation and the freedom freedom fighter for Israel. Well, so did Malcolm, Martin Luther King. Okay? Real men. Real history. But guess what? The legend, the story of the legend, the story of the myth, the tales are much more powerful than the history of a real man. Of Mo, if you want to call all these guys fake, I am here to tell you the power of these myths and legends are more powerful than the history of a real man. Somebody that you know that is real. And anybody who sit up there first off tell you that Moses, Jesus, or any of them people wasn't real is just lying to you. They lying to you because they was not there and they cannot tell. You can't tell me about a, 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 a point in history and time when you was not there and, and just make it certain as so. You want to sit up there and say there's no evidence for me to believe these things is an appeal to ignorance and it's, a, and it's logically fallacious. For I tell you that 
the African Americans, nor have any other race conquered nations, enslaved people, or even would kill you in the name of Martin Luther King. Nor will anybody kill you for talking about Martin Luther King. And certainly no wars have been fought in his name or on his behalf. Well, I can't say that about Jesus. Jesus had all that. Jesus had people that would kill you for talking about him. Go to a Muslim and say Jesus ain't real, especially in certain parts of this world, and they will kill you for that. Say Isa is not real. Because if you say Isa not real, now you're saying the Quran is not real. And they will kill you for that. Whole wars have been have been have been uh, waged in the name of Jesus. And if he didn't exist, a strong if because we're not certain, if he didn't exist, then surely that myth is more powerful than history. Not only ain't nobody fighting over Martin Luther King, they ain't doing it over George Washington, Abraham Lincoln, or any other white man in America, or black. You, you, you probably can get a bigger war started <laughs> over uh, 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 the, talking about the death in the life of a gangster than you would over Martin Luther King or any of those white men in America that were actually real, that have actual histories preceding or succeeding them. The Mashal constitutes history in Hebrew, but that don't work like that the other way around with the Europeans and the Anglo-Saxons and the English-speaking and, and Gentile world. My point is that it doesn't matter whether Abraham lived or didn't. It doesn't matter to those who follow the religion. It does not matter whether Abraham existed or not, Moses existed or not. Adam and Eve existed or not. What's important is that they left a story or a story was left concerning them. And the highest education I've got in literacy was uh, in college, English 120, that dealt with straight literature. And you're taught to read things in its proper context. You don't look at ancient Israel through modern American eyes without regard to Israelite history, Israelite culture, Israelite linguistics, Israelite religion, and Israelite mashalim, which is mashal plural. For you're surely to be reading the text completely out of context when you do that. And those who judge and want to say that our God ain't real, our Bible ain't real, our this and that, because there's no historical evidence to support the reality of these men, are people who miss the point. When you read any story, any story, the most valuable aspect of the reading is that you get the moral of the story. 
And the Bible is filled with stories and every one of them have a moral. And for someone to be ridiculous and say that the story doesn't have a moral because the characters didn't exist, exist, do not understand what myths are, do not understand what legends are, do not and certainly don't understand the purpose of this. Myths were written and constructed by societies to graph people into the society. And I'll give you a good example. Let's look at European American society. You have the story, the myths, okay, of Cinderella, okay? And when you look into the African American community, you see a sharp contrast between uh, uh, the myth, which is not real, that we know that never was real, and we see a contrast between the African-American female community, which is very, very real. Look at, look at her, look at her, look at her. Cinderella, you got this ratchet mama with these three ratchet-ass daughters hating on the stepdaughter, beautiful damsel. Okay? Now, they go all to the, they get ready to go to this ball. Why are these low-life peasant women so excited to go to this ball where there are bawling men like the prince? Hypergamy for sure. These women at the bottom of the barrel, ratchet, then bent slung and dung through the mud, probably ugly according to the story, but yet, they think that they can capture and is good enough to capture a high-value man like the damn prince. And then you have this one beautiful woman. Yes, yeah, she's from the low of society, but her attitude is humble. And she's beautiful. And she's a damsel. She's worth something to the king. She's worth something to the prince. You see the prince, she lost her slipper and the prince and check throughout the whole land to go back and get his girl her damn slipper. And how this attitude has waged its way into the American society is that many women are like those four, the mother and the three children, and even Cinderella. Cinderella has a better chance, but even Cinderella. Women who are at the bottom of the damn barrel looking for high-value men and thinking that they are good enough to have him. Crazy hypergamy at its best. Dating outside of your social class. And in America, hypergamy is the biggest problem in America. And you mean to tell me, uh, you mean to tell me that because Cinderella didn't exist, that this damn myth don't have no power in our community? You crazy. And you delusional. They didn't put all these Barbie dolls and, and, and Snow White. They didn't push this stuff into our children, especially daughters' minds for nothing. Snow White and the Seven Doors. One big, 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 big woman with a whole bunch of little simps following her. 
Come on now, wake up. You don't see that stuff. Every woman that you date, whether she's married, or every woman you know, whether she's married, whether she has a man, whether she has a boyfriend, every woman has at least three men number in their damn phone. They're a little, she, she a little short of Snow White. She got three for sure. Maybe even seven men in her phone that she know want a bone. Sips orbiting around her. And you mean to tell me that these mythologic, these myths and these mythological ideas have not taken over and possessed the mind of the American woman? You done lost your damn mind. They all sitting back waiting for their prince or their knight in shining armor. Trust me, hypergamy. She feel like she ain't gotta do shit for you, nothing for you. But she deserving of you. She can fuck her whole life up. A, a fucking suck shine. Okay? Ringo, James, George, Peter, David, and about 50 others. Yet still think she's suited for you. Yet think she's suited for you, excuse me. Hypergamy. I want to end this podcast because I've been at it for an hour and I only got an hour worth of time to record and I'm a little bit over. So I'm going to end this podcast, but this podcast was set in motion by the Elohim unto me, to you, to get you to understand the power of myths and legends why these people are trying to tell you that they don't have no power. They have more power than real history. Okay? So it doesn't matter whether these people are real or not. It doesn't matter whether you look to Moses, Noah, and Abraham as being real beings. What matters is that you get the moral of the story. This is Yasha Ben Israel signing out for the Terry Whitfield Yasha Ben Israel podcast show. I love each and every one of you. I like for you all to like, share, comment, and not the least, last but not the least, subscribe to my channel so I can get out here and constantly preach good, 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 good truth, good words, and good knowledge to you all. That being stated, this is Yasha Ben Israel, aka Terry Tedario Whitfield, for the Yasha Ben Israel Terry Whitfield Podcast Show. Shalom, shalom, walela tov. Peace, peace, goodbye, good night.